Welcome to another episode of the Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today we have a fascinating and I believe important conversation for you all with a gentleman named Kyle Vitale. Kyle is the director of programs at the Heterodox Academy. The Heterodox Academy is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that works to improve the quality of research and education in institutions of higher learning by promoting three things, open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement. And I first came to know the Heterodox Academy through reading the work of its chairman and co-founder, Dr. Jonathan Haidt. Dr. Haidt is a prominent psychologist at NYU. He is a very active public intellectual, active on the podcast circuits, and he's the author of three books, The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind, and The Coddling of the American Mind. The last of the three books, The Coddling of the American Mind, largely speaks to the problem that the Heterodox Academy is hoping to address on college campuses. The organization that Dr. Haidt helped create believes that orthodoxy and cancel culture on college campuses is on the rise, and the members of the Heterodox Academy aspire to create college classrooms and college campuses that continue to welcome diverse people but do a much better job welcoming diverse viewpoints. Their end goal is to equip students with habits that allow them to engage in constructive disagreement and find progress in the most challenging spaces. I firmly believe that finding ways to engage in consequential conversation, uncomfortable conversation, difficult conversation, is one of the most pressing issues of our time. I think without this ability and without this willingness, progress is simply out of reach for our society. And so I'm going to end this introduction by reading the last few sentences of an essay I wrote called Beautiful Conversations, which is available in full on my website for those of you that are interested. I wrote Beautiful Conversations after having a number of conversations on this platform that I felt were particularly consequential. Conversations that made me nervous, conversations that had me stumbling over words, conversations that gave me butterflies in my stomach, but conversations that left me feeling like we had found a pathway forward through really difficult spaces. And so I wrote this essay to encourage others to find the bravery to engage in similar conversations. And I ended the essay like this. We must be willing to take on complexity and nuance. We must resist the urge to be reductive or performative. We must create space where respectful opposition is encouraged. Progress demands we seek out ways to win with people that do not look like us or think like us. Uncomfortable, messy, charitable, rational conversations are best described with one word, beautiful. Join engaged individuals in beautiful conversation. Be disciplined. See the best in one another. Stay kind and brave. Beautiful conversation certainly will not solve problems on its own, but it's a giant first step in the right direction, the direction of progress. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you all will enjoy this conversation. I hope you all will engage with Kyle's thoughts. Feel free to disagree with some of them if you would like. I guarantee you Kyle would welcome that. 
And lastly, I hope all of you will engage in beautiful conversation within your own communities. Ladies and gentlemen, Kyle Vitale of the Heterodox Academy. Thanks for joining me, Kyle. It's, it's great to meet you. Yeah, this is very exciting for me. I uh, I will say it was difficult to prepare because I could spend hours and hours speaking about the importance of consequential conversation, but I'm looking forward to this. Thanks for agreeing to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, let's have a great conversation here. Let's get going. I've got a ton I want to get to, and hopefully we'll get to all of it. But I, I had a late ad that I didn't send you here that I think may be a fun place to start before yeah. we get into your background. You used this term recently. I didn't look it up. I wanted to react real time. I want you to start by telling us what is a wisdom disruptor and did you coin that term? Oh, wisdom disruptor. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did coin the term, although I'm I'm playing with a few other people out in the world who use similar phrases like uh, David Docker uses the term convictional civility. And this is trying to own a space where you can simultaneously be yourself, connect with somebody else and push back on the things that, that they are saying or believing. We are in a culture right now that doesn't allow you to do any of that. We're often self-censoring or policing what we say we believe out of fear of reprisal or criticism, especially on social media where things can go viral. And we don't ask questions anymore. We're not a question asking society. And asking a question can often come off as attack when it's really just about information gathering and connecting. So winsome disruption is this practice of finding ways to connect with the other person, being okay with affirming that you might agree on some things, mind-blowing, and using that connectivity and that, that gathering warmth to then get to a place where you can be disrupting one another's thought process or assumption in a good way. Okay, well, I like that. Well, I think certainly we're not afraid to ask questions here and take on challenging conversations. So hopefully we do some wisdom disrupting today. Well, let's back up a bit and get into your background, just briefly into your professional background. But what I'm really more interested in after you share a bit about your background is how a Shakespearean scholar ends up on your current path as the head of programming at the Heterodox Academy. So give us a little background, then tell us what the catalyst was there. Yeah, yeah, it's, I'm surprised too. <laughs> it's been interesting. So Shakespeare was the the through line for most of it. I fell in love with Shakespeare in eighth grade, ninth grade, reading Othello, just had such a visceral reaction to that play. And I knew I wanted to do more with it. That led me onto a pretty traditional academic path. I did undergraduate, majoring in English and did graduate school, went for the PhD, you know, got the PhD and went after the tenure track. But along the way, there were a lot of things that disrupted and challenged me to rethink why I do what I do. My religious faith was not something I felt I could openly share in Shakespeare practice and among my colleagues. I wasn't actively persecuted or anything, but I, I didn't feel like I could be my, my authentic self. 
I also just found a love for programming. Like I really enjoyed teaching. I also found. Can I stop you there? Was it because you felt like you would be looked down upon in the academy to be a Christian? What? Where does that stem from? Yeah, I think looked not looked down upon, but looked awry at. (laughs) Like, like really, you believe those things? And also, less personally too. Higher ed still by and large operates under a set of assumptions over the frame, pick your metaphor, of secular empiricism, that the resting state of things is secular and and empirical or data-driven, that those are the modes you need to assess the validity or the reality of something. If you want religion, then go to this student group or go to that affinity group. That's changing. I think in the last couple of years that has changed to a, a greater acknowledgement that religion, spirituality of, of a variety of modes is more fundamental to the human experience and that we're missing part of the picture. But I wasn't in grad school during that time. So it was also just to raise religion, to raise spirituality was to be so disruptive and to shift the mode of conversation so drastically that between my self-censorship and the fact that it was hard to find a place to discuss that without derailing everything and then coming off as just the derailer, it took me a very long time to crack that code. And I, I, I did. That's what Winsome Disruption is about. It's about recognizing that sometimes you are called to stand in the breach, but sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're called to just work on relationships and connect with your colleagues how you can. And over time you'll be able to shift towards those deeper, more vulnerable things. So I found myself wanting to do that kind of work. And that coincided with a shift towards wanting to help faculty do their work better. I enjoyed being a faculty member, but I also enjoyed talking to faculty about their teaching and about their writing and about their their, their campus service. And I, it used to be called Alt-Ax or Alternative Academia. I sort of plunge into that pathway. So I spent about five or six years doing that work on campus in teaching and learning centers where faculty come to us and ask us to help them work on the syllabus or get training in how to do this mode of teaching or how to use Zoom in the classroom. Over time, I, I found a, a love for developing programs and professional development opportunities and tools and resources that help people do their work better. But the religious identity part of me was still struggling and higher ed has gotten dicier and harder. And so I made the decision, difficult decision that I needed to do this work from the outside, not from the inside anymore. So HXA is is a, is a nonpartisan nonprofit that has higher ed as its main focus, but still allows me to read and write and program and talk to faculty and be who I am and say the things I want to say and help the people the way I think they, they are asking us to help a little more freely. Yeah. I still want to educate, but from a different angle, which we're going to get into, but let's go into HXA. So cool. As I mentioned, you're the head of programming at the heterodox Academy, which I'm going to out myself right up front. I think it's a very important organization. I think the mission is important. I think the work is meaningful. I would think it's meaningful at any point in history, but certainly in today's climate, it's, a, it's meaningful for sure. So start by introducing us to the Heterodox Academy. The, give us a brief history. What is it? How did it get its start? Sure. So 
Atrix A, we can talk about what, what we, the principles we stand behind and how we enact those. And then I can give a, I can give a more timeline version of sort of how we came about. So we, we really have monoculture, scholarly monoculture on our mind. We believe that, especially in the last 10 years, even the last five or six years, a new rise in orthodoxy within scholarly cultures, by which we mean scholarly journals and the disciplines, but also the classroom and places where people are learning. And this orthodoxy is one that it's not the same as scholarly consensus, which is a good thing. If if everyone is coming to the same conclusions and agreeing that there's validity to an idea, that's that's how that that's how ideas move forward. But orthodoxy is where there's an assumption that this can't be questioned, or to question it is to be on the wrong side of history and should be responded to with dismissal, with public shaming, with removal. And also beyond those more active responses to a heterodox idea or notion, it just has this chilling effect where people stop asking questions and stop trying to push because it's easier or simpler to just huddle up and find your little corner and do your work than to try to disrupt what would have become the norms. So HX exists to challenge that kind of orthodoxy with three principles, open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement. Open inquiry is essentially the ability to ask questions openly and boldly, questions that might seem sideways, heterodoxical, old-fashioned, out of line. Viewpoint diversity is what sort of fuels open inquiry. It's the idea that all good faith beliefs and arguments should be given their due. That's not, the end game is not just to have a bunch of viewpoints in this space. The end game is that open inquiry. The end game is let's activate as many different perspectives and ideas and principles, again, held in good faith that we can, so that we can progress towards greater knowledge and greater truth. All of that, though, rests on the ability to constructively disagree. If you can't do that, you can't do anything. Viewpoint diversity doesn't matter because we can't talk to one another. And open inquiry really doesn't matter because there's no point asking questions if we're not going to be constructive in the ways you go about trying to answer them. We believe that pushing, pushing, promoting, cultivating, guiding, inviting those three principles can, can sort of break the, the, the orthodoxical constraints that we're increasingly under. We do that in a variety of ways. We run a lot of programming online virtually where people can come and see speakers talking about these questions, talking about these issues, uh, how they've gone about changing the cultures around them. We have a big tools and resources library that provides free materials for teaching and for writing and for managing campus events. Uh, we have tools on how to combat cancellation if it's you being canceled or a colleague who's facing that kind of thing. And then we also run in-person events. The big one is our yearly conference where we have people come together, encourage one another, share their struggles and their solutions, and go back out into the world you know, equipped and ready to go. The timeline version is that we're founded by a variety of people, but Jonathan Haidt is our, our board director and chair. And in 2015, he and some colleagues noticed a scholarly monoculture in social science, that there was a, a, a lack of conservative voices there. The, the goal was not to make sure conservative voices have their day specifically. That's never, that's never been our, our core goal. But 
there's a monoculture here, which means there's a deeper problem in how sociology is operating. Let's fix that. And then it's just ballooned from there. Because in 2015, as Jonathan Haidt has pointed out, a lot of stuff started happening. The Gen Z generation that was coming onto campus was responding and interacting with pain and vulnerability in a different way we had not seen before that was promoting fragility and promoting orthodoxical cultures that were sort of afraid of discomfort. And so it really blossomed from there, from the this sort of sociology question into a broader question about what's happening on campus, why does it keep getting worse? Uh, and then Trump showed up, which just inflamed the whole political landscape. And so we find ourselves now doing a lot more than we were doing in 2015. I want to share a thought with you as you shared your own journey of wanting to educate from outside the classroom, still wanting to guide young minds and mold young minds, and then shared HXA's goal. This may or may not resonate with you, but one of the discussions I had with a professor on the podcast before was this idea that there's a difference between a successful education and a great education. Per our definition, a successful education would include things like making A's on exams. But a great education, on the other hand, would include things like speaking about what you learned on those exams 30 years later, 40 years later. This idea that a great education has something to do with building intellectual curiosity. And at some point when you were speaking or when I was preparing, I had that same thought about what you're doing, that the larger purpose of the university is not a successful education, but a great education. It has something to do with creating productive and engaged citizens beyond the exam. Does that resonate with you at all in, in the uh, mission? It does. So, I mean, it resonated to me as a teacher. I mean, I, I, I taught for about, about 10 years, uh, literature, British literature, composition, rhetoric, a bunch of things. And, you know, the teacher in me is just so happy to hear that because you're right. I mean, there were two levels which I was teaching. There was, yes, I hope you all pass my class. I'm going to help you do that. I hope that you learn the, the the composition skills of logos, ethos, and pathos, and that you walk away knowing that Shakespeare wrote plays, not books, right? But way, way deeper than that, I hope that you also understand how writing can change people. And I hope you understand that engagement with literature can enrich your life, whatever stage you find yourself in. And I think that deeper level, while not an explicit part of our mission, is a, I hope, a byproduct of the mission. Because if people in the classroom can be their authentic selves, cannot be afraid to share that they're an evangelical Christian to the extent that it that it connects with the course material and is a helpful thing to raise, I think that they're more at ease and they are more focused and engaged and they are more likely... We know the science of learning tells us this, if they're more engaged and having, we call it sort of high value conversations, they're more likely to remember those things and to be motivated to engage deeper in class. But that requires two things, right? The classroom is teachers and students. So both parties need to feel comfortable and willing to engage with one another on a, on a deep level. And right now it, it sounds like we hear a lot of campuses and our, our data absolutely backs it up, that there's a lot of tiptoeing around one another. And so I did this in grad school. 
a lot of, a lot of my grad school seminars, not all of them, but a lot of my memories of those are mostly the things that I wish I could have said, not takeaways that are valuable to my life right now. There were also seminars that were that university of Delaware props. I owe my, a lot of who I am today to, to, to that program, but it's just more complicated than it has to be. Well, I think, yeah, my main takeaway is that education is about more than learning the material. It's about more than learning physics. You're there to become intellectually curious, learn how to engage with one another, learn how to solve problems with one another, which is useful wherever you go. Well, let's dig further into the problem. You've been hitting on the problem a bit. Go full scale into how HXA would articulate the problem on most American campuses. What is the problem that you're trying to address and solve at HXA? Yeah. So specifically to get sort of the nitty gritty on campuses, we have a couple things we're, we're working to solve. We are worried about this thing called cancel culture. And I know that there's, there's a lot of debate about what is it? How old is it? Is it a thing? Our data time and again shows that students are absolutely self-censoring in the classroom and outside of the classroom. Uh, we run a campus expression survey every year, and we've seen a nine-point rise from three years ago to, to today, from 54% to 63% of students saying, I self actively self-censor my beliefs, specifically out of fear of reprisal or criticism from my peers or from my instructor. And that's different from just being a human. We all, we all self-censor in the sense that in order to navigate a conversation, there are things you say and things you don't say. That's called being a human. But our data specifically indicates that motivated by religious belief or political persuasion or a variety of other factors and topics, it is harder and harder to be open about one's beliefs. So we are out to fix that, to try to fix that, to help faculty know what it takes to build a classroom that can provide students with, it's not a safe space, but it is a open space to inquire boldly of one another and of the ideas in the classroom. But our faculty, our faculty are also reflecting similar things as well. There are cancellations, by which I mean faculty who are disinvited from events, who are not allowed to speak at certain venues. That's happening on an increasing basis. And so we're also trying to work with faculty and with administrators to also build faculty and scholarly cultures that allow someone like Dorian Abbott, who recently won an Open Inquiry Award from our organization, who is promoting an alternative model of admissions that's based on merit and fairness and not on and not on race, which is going up before the Supreme Court next year. He was disinvited from a, from a talk at MIT because his beliefs were perceived as hateful. That can happen, but it's so complicated. That requires working with administration and senior leadership and helping them recognize what bold leadership looks like. It means working on the faculty level to help faculty understand that alternative belief does not mean hate, does not mean attack, that even if it was hateful, it's still better to engage with it so as to understand it better and possibly to change a mind. You never know when someone's mind is ready to turn. And so isn't it better to have an, 
sort of a open market free market approach that permits all these beliefs again the good faith ones so that we can all learn more wouldn't you want to do that so that you can in a mercenary way you you can you can better them in an argument and and also if the project of higher ed is to come together to learn so the project can move forward so we want to see classrooms that are buzzing we want to see disciplines that are welcoming of more frames of belief and we want to see institutional change as well we want to see entire institutions experience sea changes that allow for bolder inquiry, more student research into a wider variety of topics, and faculty who are not knee-jerk reaction, disinviting one another and canceling speakers out, but campuses that are just robust with conversation. I mean, if we can see a depreciation, if we can see a, a slowing down of events like we had at Yale Law School, where the Federalist Society brings in a liberal and a conservative to debate, and the whole event gets shut down by law students who ambush the event. If we can see a decrease in that kind of thing, maybe we're getting somewhere. Campus culture is more willing to talk and less willing to shout. Yeah, and there's a lot you said there. and We're going to dig into that and even try to push back on some of the things that we may agree on. But what I'm hearing is a few things that eventually I want to get into. The first is self-censorship, which sounds like in your case and in some other cases, it, it has to do with fear which may or may not be reasonable. It has to do with courage. Speaking your mind and being uncomfortable has a lot to do with being brave. And that is a different problem than the second one you articulated where individuals are actually being canceled and speaking engagements are actually being canceled. That's a bit different. I'm also hearing you say that campuses are seemingly forcing this binary examination of a world that is very idiosyncratic and very particular, that maybe we're losing a bit of that idiosyncraticness, losing a bit of the gray. Is that, is that fair? Am I hearing you right there? Yeah, I think so. Now it's, it's, I want to, yeah, I, I don't want to sidetrack too much. I'll let you ask a question, but I, I should clarify that higher ed is two things. You can refer to it as higher ed as an institution, but it's also, it's so fractal. It's also what, 3,000 plus institutions. And within each institution, it's dozens, if not hundreds of departments. And each of those has their own culture. And those cultures are all intersecting with the disciplinary cultures that show up in the journals and in you know, the, the yearly conferences. So it's very, very difficult to, to generalize. However, yes, we are seeing more and more of those cultures lose those idiosyncrasies and, and lose lose the ability for individuals in those cultures to have idiosyncratic features. So DEI, for example, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're all about equity. We're all about ensuring that all people have a place at the table. And one of our arguments is that that should include ideological you know, diversity too. But something that gets lost when we focus so much on race, class, and gender is that I get pegged as a white male. Well, that's that's fine. That's true. I am white and I am male. I'm also Irish Italian. A hundred years ago, I was not white. I was something else. And there are so many features about my life and my upbringing that impact how I look at the world and the things I struggle with that the white male I'm speaking to right now may not have experienced and vice versa. All of that gets lost. 
when we are so hyper-focused on monocultural ways of engaging, like identity politics. So long caveat. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, those listening may want me to dive into our identity politics. I'm not going to, but I promise you listeners, we are going to try to go back into the problem and get into some, some nuance there, which I think will be interesting. But before we do, I want to ask you about the importance of being nonpartisan in this pursuit for the Heterodox Academy. It appears that HXA has gone out of its way to be apolitical. The makeup of your membership is impressively diverse. One of the things that I picked up on, though, is that it's one thing to function as a nonpartisan organization. It's quite another to be viewed by the general public as nonpartisan. And I want to focus on the latter Mm -hmm. because I think that's that's maybe the bigger problem. What is your strategy to go beyond functioning in a political manner and into the rare space today of being viewed as nonpartisan? This is something that we face. I mean, the, the phrase viewpoint diversity, which appears on our website, when we first started using that phrase in, in uh, you know, a few years ago, it was not loaded. And in recent months and even years, that phrase has become a bit co-opted by some elements on the right to specifically mean freedom of right-leaning individuals to say what they want to say. And so it's it's always tough because uh, you know I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a literature scholar and a language scholar. Language changes. And that's exciting. To a certain extent, that means that HXA and, and any other nonprofit needs to always be self-aware of what sorts of afterlives the words are using are taking on out in the world and to be be aware of that. So one thing we're doing is just that. We as staff are are always checking in on how our words and language is is landing with our audience and with people who might stumble across us. And for any other nonprofit people who are listening, whether you're in our sphere or not, it's just, it's just good to be aware of. That said, we're in an interesting position where the things we say do apply to politics but also to things that are utterly apolitical, meaning red-blue. So, yeah, by and large, the numbers do indicate that campus is pretty liberal. There is a preponderance of progressives, especially among faculty and especially among administrators. Our CES data, the Campus Expression Survey, does indicate that more Republican-leaning students are self-censoring on topics like gender and race and class than Democrat-leaning students. but some of this might be my the 15 years or so I spent in higher ed before moving to HXA, but a lot of the remedies for those things are entirely apolitical. I mean, we want to talk about a variety of things, including incentivizing. How are faculty incentivized to thrive in higher ed? Right now, a lot of them are incentivized to produce, 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 produce research papers. And we need that. We need that. That's how that's how we get vaccines, right? That's how we get the answers to big questions. But there's so much less training devoted and incentivizing devoted to teaching well. And so when something erupts in the classroom where somebody says something, often the fact pattern gets buried because the media just lands on it and uses it for, for whatever narrative they want to construct. But when you look at the fact patterns, fairly typically, the whole issue could have been resolved if after the thing was said, everybody had just slowed down and asked a clarifying question. 
But a lot of faculty aren't trained to do that. They're not trained to essentially crisis negotiate in the classroom, which you need to be able to do, I can tell you personally. So that might be political in that there are a lot of people on campus who want a lot of things. And so there's always a political game, but that's not a, that's not necessarily a conservative progressive thing. And so higher HXA, we, we, we really work hard to be above the culture war and to, and to say that our issues don't align with conservative or progressive understood as, as, you know, Fox news versus CNN. We are out to, to fix higher ed as an organization. We are organizational doctors on, on some level trying to fix that. And sometimes that means engaging with progressive forces I want to take over. And sometimes that means engaging with conservative forces I want to take over, right? And yeah, our, for the longest time, it was the conservative side of politics that was limiting speech and the, to hit on what you said earlier, the religious side of politics. But let me tell you why I brought up this line of thinking because I am, I'm uber-focused on progress and how we find progress and avoid preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. And the reason I brought this up is because a quote that I took from you. I'm going to read you that quote. I think it's wonderful. And I hope people really hear this. We don't want to get past people. We want to win people. Mm -hmm. I think that is such a powerful quote because I say all the time on this platform, progress means we're all coming. Progress means, to borrow your word, we win with people that don't look like us and don't think like us, maybe even don't like us. So I want to share a related anecdote to this point and then get your thoughts. I believe that the founder of HXA, Jonathan Haidt, is rare in his ability to bring equanimity and reasons and empathy to really challenging conversations. I think he's matched by very few. However, I've brought his name up and his work up multiple times in the presence of liberal scholars that I've had on this platform. I'll add brilliant liberal scholars that I've had on this platform. And I get pause from them. They are clearly hesitant to read Dr. Height's work. They're clearly hesitant to view him through an objective lens. And I see that as a problem. That's why I asked the original question. So how do you win people that at best are skeptical of your message and at worst have no interest in, in hearing your message. The type of people that, that think sweet old Jonathan Hyde is beyond the pill. How do you get past that? I think it has something to do with being apolitical and not just functioning apolitical, but being viewed as apolitical. So there's a whole lot of words in that. Go ahead and respond. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tough to speculate on, on the, the specifics of, of what you experienced there. I, I would guess that some of it has to do with just the way social media and academic Twitter and that sort of thing tends to identify people. But, you know, saying that, saying that judges those individuals you spoke with for having not read his work enough, which I, I wouldn't want to be in the place of doing. So I will respond to that specifically, but, but generally I have faced this. I faced this when doing my own work and I faced this with my colleagues. I mean, as I exited exited academia to the extent that I've done that. I, I don't know if I have or not and shifted my work. People ask me, oh, what's that organization? I mentioned Jonathan Haidt. I mentioned our, our principles. And I, I, I would get a similar, a similar vibe. I want to return us to my point I made earlier about questions. I often got around that by asking the other 
more questions about their thoughts and not in a, not in a aggressive kind of, well, have you actually read what he wrote kind, kind of thing? That just, that just turns people off. But I would ask things like, if it's a good friend, I notice I notice you're, I notice you're a bit hesitant there. I'm really curious to hear why you are. And you can ask that in a way that is, that signals, I trust you. Your opinion matters to me. So if you're having that kind of reaction, I want to know why. And in a couple of occasions, I was able to get the conversation to a point where we could talk about the actual details of what Height said or what Atrix is actually standing for. And sometimes that that didn't change any minds, but rather than paper over that weirdness and, and just move on now, great, now we have that thing behind us. We talked it out and we were able to continue to be open with each other after that point. But in a couple of those conversations, it did change minds in that they would articulate reasonable critiques. And I would be able to say, that's really interesting. I, you know, I want to go think about that a bit more. That sets them at ease. And I honestly mean that you should say in a way that you, you honestly mean it. We're all busy, but yeah, I want to think about that critique. But then I could also point out to them, well, now you are responding to Heights claims that we are more emotionally driven than we often give ourselves, often think we are. We like to think our, our heads are in control, but our hearts are in control. I hear you responding to that emotionally, not intellectually. <laughs> you're actually proving his point in the way you're responding to this right now, and right? Danny and Danny Kahneman's point and any psychologist over the last hundred years. Absolutely. You know, right? what, I, what I'm hearing, which I think is, I just want to highlight this point you just made. Respond with curiosity and understanding over judgment or outrage or performance. I think that's such a key point, and that's really well said. When you encounter some of that, how you respond is everything. Are you trying to understand? Are you trying to be curious? Are you trying to find some path forward? Are you trying to perform? Are you trying to go directly to outrage? Well, you didn't read Jonathan Haidt's word. Yeah, I, I love that point. Let's do this. Let's go back to the problem because in the true value of the HXA way, which is on your website, and I encourage everyone to, to read the HXA way. I'm having trouble with that. <laughs> I believe one of the principles is charity and steel manning. And I believe strongly in steel manning, which is stating the other, your opponent's argument in a way that they would agree with. So what I did, Kyle, was spend a bit of time with a former guest that I knew would be skeptical of organizations like HXA. And so Dr. believes that the idea that colleges are illiberal or rampant with cancel culture is a, quote, manufactured conservative talking point. He admits that there's room for improvement around constructive dialogue, but he would tell us that much of what we hear about college campuses is hyperbolic or our assessment of the scale of the problem is largely fueled by availability bias. So what would you say to a, a response like that? Right, right. Yeah. So I don't want to I don't want to be on record as responding directly to him only because I, I would want to read a lot more about what, what sure, he sure. said. Oh, to that point. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's 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 one of the practices right there. Right. So kind of, kind of two things. I want to respond directly to, to the point you're asking, but to sort of keep it at one level higher there about questions and responses. We're in a culture that 
wants you on social media or for the soundbite or for the votes, if you're a certain kind of person, to respond in a way that is quick and that somehow signals your entire posture on on an issue in a Jeopardy answer so that they can use it or react to it. And the reality is that most of us are deeply contradictory. That's what part of being a human is. And that's actually one of our greatest assets in some ways. That's a whole other rabbit trail we can go down. But social media is not, it's not natural. It's not natural to who we are. We are made, I believe made, but we exist to be in local community. And local can be pretty big, but in local conversation where you do have the time to lay out the nuances of what you believe. But our culture doesn't like nuance. It doesn't like reiterating, clarifying, that sort of thing. So we get that kind of response, that kind of that kind of charge a lot, though, from, from the professor about it's a conservative talking point. It's only based on availability data. And I'd say a couple of things. I would first ask. I'm curious, I'm curious to hear you connecting those talking points with conservative culture specifically. Could you share more about the connections you're seeing there and why you see that applying to conservative specifically? And that might lead to a conversation about, about what conservative means, which is a huge question these days. The Republican Party is, is three Republican parties right now. So I, I could imagine a conversation that allows us to go down that rabbit trail. I would also find a moment to gently point out that our men- membership and our our staff is deeply politically diverse. We are not monolithically conservative at all. So it's odd to hear us characterized as using conservative talking points when we're not really out there looking to to score conservative points politically or 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 in the media. And by and large, the work we're doing is with a medley of liberal, libertarian, independent, and 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 conservative. So I would look for a place to to point that out. As for the availability bias and whether we have blinders on or are only you know hyper focused on a specific data set, I think there are two things to say there. One. You know, we are constantly improving our campus expression survey. You know, we we don't roll the same thing out every year and get the same data set and then say the same things. We're we are always improving it. And in fact, we just had a blog series where we engaged with a critic of our of our survey. So we we are also trying to do our best to make sure we are we are not stuck in a kind of availability bias. And we're also seeing that it doesn't matter. And I, I don't want to be quoted as just, you know, Kyle, I tell our director of HXA said availability bias doesn't matter. What I mean by that is when something happens, the Yale Law School event happens or Doreen Abbott gets disinvited from MIT, you have to ask two questions. Number one, how prevalent is this kind of thing actually? You know, am I just around the corner from my own cancellation? And maybe you are, maybe you aren't. We are continuing to look at that. But number two, regardless of whether or not you're around the corner from your own campus facing a debacle, what kind of effect is the media coverage and the senior leadership response in that moment that gets reported publicly? What effect is that having on the culture more generally? And the answer to that is abundantly clear. It is a chilling effect. And so availability bias, while an absolutely pertinent question for the data, 
it's a totally different question in kind from the question of what impact these kinds of events are having on the culture more broadly. And so therefore, what can we do to lessen the impact of those events? That doesn't mean bury them. We don't want to bury them and pretend they're not happening. But how can the people in the moment have acted differently to prevent that event from happening in the first place? And how can the media ensure the reporting accurately on the fact patterns of what's happening in those, in those events so that other campuses can learn from them? I think yeah. you're bringing up an interesting point, which is that the level of consequence associated with a threat matters, even if that threat has a very low probability. You yeah. know, what? I'll bring up I'll bring up a point from the Coddling of the American Mind just to stay mm. on topic. One of the things that Dr. Height points out, I have two young daughters, by the way, is that the probability of your child being kidnapped in the United States is statistically zero. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. well, and he uses that point to encourage parents to allow your children to explore on their own and do these things. Well, one of the things, Kyle, I found myself thinking is, yes, the probability is statistically zero that one of my daughters is kidnapped. But the level of consequence if one of my daughters is kidnapped is so high that it's probably not unreasonable for me to elevate my attention to that beyond zero. And yeah. I think that's an interesting point. It's small percentages of people can have an outside effect. But let me use that to back into another question. You were talking about the data, and I did pull from the data that I want you to share some thoughts on. So you're in the 2021 Heterodox Academy Campus Expression Survey, you point out that 90% of students surveyed believe that colleges should be a place where different views and beliefs are welcomed and encouraged, which sounds like something that's really, really exciting to hear. I mean, we could get into what do they mean by different views and beliefs, but let's just take it for its face. That's a great thing. Yet, to your other point, 64% of students are still saying that the climate on campus prevents them from saying things they believe. Yep. So the study goes on to say that those types of results point out that, quote, students are self-censoring to avoid negative consequences that are unlikely to happen. And one of the possible solutions is to encourage courage, like we were talking about earlier, is to correct students' misperception. So if you were taking that data and turning it into an op-ed in the New York Times to give its students advice on campus, what would it say? What's the lesson between that data? Yeah. Yeah. A couple lessons. I think the question is still out. How prevalent is this is this stuff actually? Um, our, our data, the mere fact that there's so much self-censorship and and that the faculty cancellations aren't slowing down, it really, it really does suggest that this is as prevalent as we, and not just ourselves, but, but others indicate. We, our CES is something people can adapt. We have other campuses also doing it, and they're finding similar things on their campuses. So yeah, I, I do want to just back up quick and underscore that while we are very open to the criticism that, that it's, it's, it's less prevalent than you know, we think it is, we would still point to the chilling effect. We also believe that we need to keep researching because it well and truly could be that prevalent. However, the big lesson for me from that gap that like 90% want to see more open culture, but 64% or 63% are, are still self-censoring. That suggests to me that students and faculty are so ready. They are so ready to see cultural change and they are so earnest to just be themselves and do the work that they came to college to do or that they got their PhD to go do. And 
there's just so many things curbing their ability to do that. And I, I saw this last week. So we, we hosted our HXA, our yearly conference last week in Denver. We had over 500 people show up, mostly faculty and, and, and higher ed administrators and staff and a bunch of public intellectuals. And I saw exactly that. It was a politically and demographically and institutionally diverse range of people. And they were there to talk and to work. And so that, that 90% number you, you cited from us about people wanting a certain campus culture, I really believe that while cancel culture can feel formidable, if we keep pushing, we're just on the other side of seeing some, some turning points and seeing more and more people hop on board. I mean, we're seeing that in the broader culture too. More and more space for comedians like Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle and Bill Maher to say, say the things they want to say. Now, I'm not naive. Netflix probably did some calculations and realized that it's going to be more of a cost saver to promote Ricky Gervais rather than to shut him down, right? That's a bad look. But, but still, if you go on Twitter and you're in the sort of civil discourse space, there is, there is rumblings of a sea change just starting to happen, people getting sick and tired of it. And I hope that 90% number indicates that if we can provide the space, faculty and students will absolutely show up. If you build it, they will come. They will absolutely show up to, to do the real work of, of learning and educating. It also kind of said to me, Kyle, that courage is part of the equation. So you want to stop the canceling from happening, but you also have to encourage people to be courageous. You also have to encourage them to be particular and measured and be careful how they phrase an argument. But being brave is part of the equation, which is easier said than done, obviously. But I think that's part of the equation. Well, I want to move on to John Stuart Mill, Mm. who is a very important figure for HXA. And I want to allow you to use Mill to tell us all why open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement is so important. So feel free to go on a tangent here. But I want to start right here. And on liberty, Mill is less concerned with government censorship and more concerned with social conformity through peer pressure and ostracism. Explain his line of thinking there. Why is the tyranny of prevailing opinion so powerful, maybe even more powerful than the tyranny of government? Peer pressure. You know, I I really think it comes down to peer pressure. I mean, the tyranny of government leads to America. When there is oppression that is externalized and allows a group of people to form around it and to push back and respond to it, that's revolution. And what John Stuart Mill was identifying was a flaw in our human nature. Uh, you know, I'm a person who believes that human nature is not perfect. It's much more pernicious when it's internalized because human beings are, as Jonathan Knight points out, we are tribal. We, we like comfort. We like to know that we belong certain places and our defense mechanisms are on high alert against that which would threaten us. What that means is that if you have internalized a fear of criticism or of threat to your belief system, you can get yourself into some really vicious cycles of creating bubbles around the things you hear that only allow you to hear the things that are from the things you want to hear, right? That's that's what people do with news cycles. So John Stuart Mill wanted to push further and say, well, basically predict what's happening in America right now. You can build a free democracy. You can do it. It's hard work. We have almost failed many times. And Haidt proposes that if we don't do something about it, we're going to fail now. That doesn't fix the people inside the democracy. 
we still have to grapple with our humanness. And so Mill is really trying to underscore you have to constantly work on yourself, constantly work on yourself and be vigilant and be self-aware of when you have a wall up that shouldn't be up because more and more walls leads to, I mean, the modern American voting situation we're in right now. So a second question on Mill, Kyle. Why does John Stuart Mill and Heterodox Academy believe that, quote, ideas must be vigorously and earnestly contested? So John Stuart Mill has a great line. Uh, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but he essentially says that when two opposing ideas meet, the answer usually lies in the middle. We take as HXA takes as a base resting assumption that higher education exists for curiosity and for the seeking after of, you know, of, of truth, truth and knowledge, right? Our official mission statement is that we want to, we want to reform the culture of higher education, but yeah, there's a lot of debate about why it exists in the first place. And uh, our, our president, Jonathan Tomasi has published on our blog about it exists for curiosity. We need to keep people being as curious as humanly possible so that we're always learning, always improving ourselves and always vigilant for what challenges and solutions we're facing socially. If we're not, then we backslide. We backslide into comfortable ways of being and living, which isn't always good for us as humans. And we fail to, to progress. It's vitally important to constantly be testing because intellectual cultures and currents are always changing. Society is always changing to always be testing and scrutinizing and looking at all ideas because you never know what constellation of ideas is going to lock in place at the right moment to allow us to, well, create a vaccine that takes care of COVID, to improve our educational system, to find better ways of, you know, civic organization. But the moment you start assuming that an idea is motivated the wrong way, you don't just shut down the perceived threat of that idea. You also shut down all the legitimate observations and truths that that idea might have buried within it. And it's a slippery slope when you start deciding you're going to shut down ideas because you don't like the way they're motivated or because you think they're motivated a certain way. Human beings are incapable of responsibly selecting which ideas they are going to pay attention to, which they're not going to, because tribalism in our hearts will set in. So it's much better to commit to that open market of ensuring that all ideas are wrestled with. Now, I want to clarify, we don't mean, and John Stuart Mill also did not mean, that all ideas deserve an equal place at the table for all time in seculae and secularum. I, I use the phrase good faith ideas a lot. So Flat Earth. Flat Earth has been taken care of. It has been resolved. <laughs> we have abundant knowledge and facts to indicate that we can all agree that the Earth is, is round. We don't have the same information about whether God exists. We want to ensure that all ideas that are scrutinizable, discussable, and that are still open and that are offered up as a legitimate opportunity or legitimate attempt to learn something about the world or ourselves are given their due until they are resolved. 
or until the conversation shifts to discuss them in a different or in a better way. The moment we are not doing that, we're missing out. We're missing out on potential observations and discoveries and findings. Yeah, I think the interesting point Mill makes, and you guys make in your paper, All Minus One, which is a basically a reaccount of what Mill put together in On Liberty, is that progress requires a gadfly in the Socratic tradition. It requires right. someone to probe, someone to question, someone to scent. Intellectual progress requires an opponent. And I think that's a wonderful aspiration that you guys seem to espouse on your site, is that if we can convince peers and leaders that the opponent is not to be circumvented, the opponent is not to be dismissed, the opponent is necessary. I think that's a, a really magical and, and beautiful aspiration. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I bet though some listeners hear that and go, wait a second, there's a limit on what opponents I'm willing to tolerate, as you were sure. kind of getting into with the flat earth, earth comment. So I want to get into what you call responsible engagement, mm-hmm. how we have the conversation. What are the key components of responsible engagement? I think there are, there are several factors that can ensure that conversation can move forward and that both parties feel fully engaged. And one of them does, does revolve around that question of pain and trauma. And it is starting with the assumption that, that the oppositional person is not out to get you. And therefore, if there is a slight of, uh, not a slight, but if if there is a a remark that is not obviously an attack, I'm not talking about someone out and out calling you a racial slur, right? That's a different game entirely. But uh, this this world of microaggression and implicit bias, which the science is still out on whether there's an actual connection between those internalized mechanisms and, and external action. But if you can start from the assumption that that person's tone in this particular instance of that comment isn't intended to harm me, we can already get leagues ahead of where where a lot of us are now. I mean, we're human. We're, We're constantly worried that others are criticizing us or judging us. And in my work as a teacher, I would often try to build a classroom culture that started with the assumption of the assumption of good intentions. That does two things that prevents a conversation from halting immediately and and the world ending because I have been slighted or I have been offended. But it also does create space for a person who does feel slighted or offended to ask a question like, hey, when you said that, what did you mean by that? Right? Not freeze. I have been harmed or injured. We need to talk about that. But instead, you said that in a certain way, and I'm not sure you meant it that way, or could you clarify? We need to do that more. So responsible engagement means assuming assuming good intentions from the opponent. Again, assuming that they're not obviously attacking you. It also means being willing to find points of commonality and agreement early in the conversation, which thrives on assuming good intentions. Uh, social media and, and our, our modern era is one that assumes that if you agree on one thing, that you've conceded all of your territory to that person, right? Uh, it's got to be all or nothing. And that is so not true. So finding points of agreement early, like, hey, I really think we we agree on this fact. Or I've used this a lot in my own in my own work. It sounds like we totally agree on the goals of this program. We just have different ways of trying to get to those goals. But let's talk for a minute. I, you said something about um, the goal of making sure all classrooms are equitable. I couldn't agree with you more. Can I hear more about what you mean by that? Be willing. It involves gentleness and humility, but be willing to go there early. 
And that sets the other person at ease. It reduces the sense that there's disagreement or that your enemies are, opposite, are opposing one another, and then allows you to get to the, the nuts and bolts of the disagreement in a, more, in a more comfortable way. So, you know, assume good intentions, find points of agreement. And when you disagree, do it joyfully, do it winsomely. I mean, you don't have to say, that's so well and good, but here we go. It can be, man, I just don't see it that way at all. Here's how I see it. And it's so exciting that that someone could look at it that way. Can I share with you what I think about this? Let's talk about it. So I also think coming at it with, with, with joy and, and happiness which I know you can't just turn off and on, depends on, on the conversation, can also just, again, signal that I'm not out to eat your face. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm out to learn. And, and I, I assume you are too. So let's talk about that together. We need more of that for sure. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned harm a couple of times. And mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's kind of where Mill's argument gets a little dicey because harm is so ambiguous. And a common trope we hear today is that that speech will harm me or that speech will make us unsafe. I want to ask how you think about harm. Are there topics that should be off limits on a college campus? How should we apply the idea of harm to free discussion? How should we choose or where should we choose to limit discussions? How do you think about that? So I think I preface by saying that it might be that I I think about that differently than how HSA as, as an organization, you know, thinks about it. I um, I think as an organization, HXA is simultaneously self-aware that some topics are, of course, way more controversial and, and likely to have an impact on a campus's, you know, serenity than than others. And it, that also changes by the day. I mean, right now, gun control is usually always one of those topics, but right now it's especially that case, right? Uh, we would not suggest a debate on gun control without a lot of foresight and forethought into how questions are being dealt dealt with and what the title of the event is and who's being involved. I think as an organization, we are, we are, we let reasonableness guide a lot of our recommendations that what's going to be good for your campus in a given moment or good for your classroom in a given moment. Will the conversation or the potential harm that you foresee in your syllabus or in your lesson plan, is it worth the risks for the payoff? of the learned material or the place it can get your classroom on the other side. And if it's worth, if it's worth it, be prepared to work with students, but go for it because you're not there to protect them. You're there to teach them. Rosalind Clark Artis, who's the president of Benedict college. Uh, she said something at our conference last week, which is fantastic. Um, I, I don't, won't get the quote exactly, though it's available on our Twitter, you know, physically, I want you to be safe, but intellectually I am going to hurt you. She actually said that. Right. Um, I am absolutely here to make you uncomfortable and to make you struggle and squirm to wrap your head around these concepts and to learn these things and to deal with it. Because out in the real world, I I hate to say that because campus is the real world, but when you graduate and go out off into the working world, you know, organizations and corporations are coming around to the idea of mental health and, and people being human, but still the demands for protectionism that you're looking for on campus, you're not going to get, you're just not going to get. And so we're probably trying to produce well-adjusted adults. That's what I could say about HXA. Personally, I start from the assumption that I don't know what the person I'm talking to is carrying with them. I don't know their baggage and their experiences. 
And by the way, the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or their gender has often nothing to do with their actual experiences. Often it does. Often it does. And quite often it doesn't. I have met so many broken straight white men. So many. If somebody is reacting strongly to a conversational topic, two things need to happen at once. Number one, I need to start from the assumption that there might be something deep and real there that's producing that reaction. And I want to know, so I should ask questions about it. And number two, I should be in an environment that allows me to manage that without derailing everything around it. So the classroom, for instance, so many classroom sessions get frozen or dismissed because the wrong thing is said and somebody is, is feeling traumatized. And so everything's got to, got to shut down. Some psychology suggests that it's actually not good psychologically for that individual for everything to shut down because that, that only reinforces the notion that your pain and your feelings are the center of the universe and they need to be dealt with by everybody before anything else can happen. It is possible to balance these two notions that you are owed dignity. You are a human. I feel for you. I want to, I want to, I want to help you get over this hurt, whatever you're experiencing. And here are the mechanisms that allow a classroom to deal with that, to allow a campus event to deal with that in a way that doesn't mow that person over or flatten them at all, that affirms that this is a tough subject and that we have ways to help you, individual human, Max or Jennifer or, or Kyle or, or, or you know, Clay, whoever you are, while also serving the needs of everybody else in the room who are there to learn, to disagree, to grow, to, to whatever it is. So it's, it's so hard, but it's a balance of, of affirming human dignity and providing flexible spaces that, that aren't dismissed because of the mention of a word or a phrase or a person or, or an event. You said it's so hard. That's what I was thinking when you were articulating HXA's side of the argument. As you talk about something we can disagree about is whether or not this speaker is going to affect, I think you said, the serenity of campus. We're going to disagree about that constantly. And as you mentioned, it evolves in different time and spaces. So we may have agreed that a gun culture debate is absolutely going to be a robust helpful conversation on campus at one time and we might not at another. Yeah. All the more reason to figure out how to have consequential conversations, uncomfortable conversations, because I think this is where the rubber hits the road. It's not from a 30,000 foot, whether or not we encourage this type of debate. It's which ones fall on one side of the line and the other, which ones are appropriate and which ones are not. That's, I think, where most of the disagreement happens. And like you said, there's not a real great answer. I tend to fall on the University of Chicago's letter on free expression. I think they do a very good job pointing out where there should be restrictions, but basically say a, the principal commitment is open deliberation, regardless on whether or not it's offensive or wrongheaded or immoral. They use a bunch of adjectives, but they do outline some areas where we say, hey, this is going to affect the serenity of campus. Well, two more questions and I'll let you get out of here. You mentioned the conference this year in Denver you guys put on. I know one of the very important topics you covered was trust. And mm -hmm. you've been speaking to this quite a bit throughout the conversation because I think it's important. 
But I want to know what you what you learned in Denver. How do we develop trust amongst intellectual opponents? Yeah, it's a great question. And I actually think you, you hit on it just now with the Chicago principle too, that if you have a campus culture that whose resting state is is open inquiry, you promote that culture, but then also messages having the flexibility and the understanding that people are human and can get hurt, that promotes trust because that that messages from the top down that we understand the mission here. We're here we're here to help you learn. We're here to get questions answered and you are welcome to be here. And if things should arise that are problematic, we are aware of that. We're not going to blast forward at the expense of all things and all people. We're also not going to shut it down. That is a I keep finding myself using this metaphor and I keep saying that, that I, I apologize if it's patronizing, but it just, it's such a good metaphor. I also have kids. I've got two, two young boys and it's my parenting posture too, that my kids need to know that I am engaged and alert and present and self-aware that the most important thing is for them to know that they are on a path upward, uh, an upward path of development and learning and that I love them and I'm here for them for that. And that my, my role is to help them grow. And I'm not blind to the fact that they stub their toes, that things get said to them that they don't like. Um, Sometimes that, that dislike they need to just get over. Sometimes that dislike needs to be dealt with. That helps them trust me. They trust me because they know that I'm not going away and that I'm listening and that I'm here, that I have their their development in mind and their 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 weaknesses as well. In terms of trust, therefore, you know, we learned a lot at the conference. Um, we learned that a lot of faculty are facing situations where winsome disruption, that term we use at the opening, is just not going to work. Now we we knew that already, but being in a room for the first time in three years, we, had, we hadn't run a conference in three years because of COVID and really talking to these people just really brought home for me that, yeah, there are situations where a person is, is saddled with impossibly uncivil coworker on a committee and no amount of asking questions and trying to connect is going to get the job done. What do you do there? How, how, do, you, how do you help that person learn to trust any of their colleagues? And how do you help that person still feel any kind of connection to their university campus? Because belonging on campus matters too. You know, one thing that HXA is going to work on doing and that we, 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 we already do well, we'll keep doing is providing spaces for faculty to convene. If you can't find anybody to trust or any, any, any deep connective trust on your campus, let's help you find that where we can through virtual communities. You know, we, we announced that at our conference that we're, we're hoping to run more in-person communities. Let's do that. And that's that's twofold. Let's provide that service. But let's also let that service be a model back to higher ed. Because higher ed, I adore higher ed. It does so many things right and so many things wrong. Higher ed does not provide good mentoring services. It does not provide great cohort experiences that cultivate authentic, vulnerable relationships between colleagues, between faculty. That means there's a lack of trust. That means that there's a lack of extending benefit of the doubt. 
There's a lack of ability to walk down the hallway into that person's office and say, hey, I really got to talk about this thing. It, it does exist. absolutely does exist. Again, higher ed is fractal. But if we can provide that service and also model back to higher ed, hey, look, these faculty are thriving because they're doing this thing together. They're in relationship where they're trusting one another and able to bring more to the table. You should try it. <laughs> um, my, my maybe naive hope is that fact, higher ed pays attention to that and starts developing better cohort models on campus so that people can learn to trust one another more, which then leads to asking better questions, which then leads to better discovery and better conversations. Well, what I find interesting is you say that a lot of professors are having trouble finding anyone to trust. The, the question for me was, how do you trust an intellectual opponent? So it sounds to me like we need to take some baby steps here. Oh, but, we, uh, we, we do. I just went really quick. I mean, I, I, I hate to drop it really, really quick. So I when I started uh, a position at one of these teaching and learning centers, my nominal job description was to provide support services for teaching and learning and research. So, you know, I have a PhD, I've taught, I've written, I've published. So I'm, I'm a guy that faculty can come to when they are looking for help. But I was told very early on as well that my job would also be very emotional because my boss's first day on the job, first day on the job of my supervisor, this particular institution, found her in a coffee shop with a sobbing new instructor who had not been told where the bathroom was, what their printer code was, or where there, or how to unlock their office door. They had essentially been given a welcome letter and said, good luck. And when you incorporate the contingent faculty crisis into the equation, where there's so many faculty who don't, who don't even have a reliable parking space on campus. Yeah, there are faculty who can't find a single person they feel like they can trust on campus. It is it's bad. Can, can, we, can we help? Can we help? One of the things when I was preparing is I listened to a podcast you were on. And one of the things you said, which I think makes a lot of sense here, is that we often miss the fact that we share a goal. And I think that's so important to keep in mind. One of the ways I try to develop trust when I'm sitting across someone that I may have disagreements with is by spending less time pointing at groups and more time pointing at humans, pointing at all of us, pointing at shared goals, like you mentioned, the places where we overlap. I've quoted her before on the podcast, but the activist Polly Murray said back in the 60s that whenever an opponent draws a circle that excludes me, I draw a bigger one that includes us all. And I'm big on that in these conversations, keeping that in mind. You know, not that we don't call out bad behaviors of certain groups or individuals or call out fallacious ideas, but draw big circles, point out common humanity. And you know, I, I think history is on our side here because all societal progress, actually, I don't know about all, most societal progress has come as a result of common humanity, not dividing this. And that's something I try to keep in mind when I'm in these conversations. But last question for you here, Kyle. What gives you optimism in this pursuit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot does. You know, I think that that whole drawing a bigger circle thing, uh, it, it often can come off as a very, it can come off as a very flimsy, soft sort of kumbaya, let's all just get along. But I think it's important to underscore that it is hard work to draw a circle of commonality and point out that commonality. You have to really thread the needle because I find that, you know, as a person who is often a countervailing wind, I try to point out commonality and the immediate response is suspicion. It's, I don't think you're using that phrase the same way I'm using it, right? I'll be in the pro-life, pro-choice debate 
with someone who's on the opposite end of things from me. And I'll describe life in a certain way. Or they'll describe life in a certain way. And the first reaction is, uh, assuming you mean what you, I think you mean by that. So it's, it's, it's hard work. But what gives me optimism... Well, before you answer that question, let me respond sure. to that real quick. Please, please. I've had an individual on this podcast that prior to their conversation shared a post that started with the words, this is why I hate white people, and then went on to describe this situation. And I'll tell you what, I left that conversation finding common ground. I left that conversation finding space to move forward. We talked about Black Lives Matter. We talked about policing. We talked about George Floyd. And most of the time, we were finding places to agree. I walked away from that conversation feeling engaged, feeling refreshed, feeling optimistic, speaking to this question. So I would point that out that, yeah, it is really difficult. And I agree with you. Those quotes can come across as kind of kumbaya. You have to, there are call out fallacious ideas and say, you are in the wrong here. But there's also times to point out the reason you're in the wrong Mm-hmm. Is because you're a human being. You know, I had a sociologist that studies policing. And one of the things we talked about is oftentimes what we find in policing and we point to policing. You go over to Daniel Kahneman's work with, to mention him again, and you realize all yeah. humans do that. There are structural problems. <laughs> but when you point at groups, as opposed to coming at that problem, I guess what I'm saying is how we speak about certain topics is oftentimes deterministic and on the outcome. And so anyways, sorry for that, that monologue, but what are you optimistic about? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm optimistic in so many ways. I mean, I'm optimistic sociologically. Uh, Jonathan Haidt in, points out that, and, and other sociologists too, point out that history works on a pendulum. And, you know, uh, in some ways, the pendulum had swung towards thriving for a culture in the 80s and 90s. And that was coming out of the 70s. And that led into the early aughts, which... The last 20 years, 9-11, the recession, COVID, uh, Trump, the next recession, it's not been great. But there are, there are historical patterns, and they're traceable. So I, I look to that. I personally, my optimism is rooted in my faith. Uh, I, I, I believe that regardless of what's happening in the meta-narrative, Every day, I am called to engage well with the people in front of me and to encourage them and to give them life and to, to, to help them. And you can always do that, no matter how bad it is. You can always do that. And that was me as a teacher, too. I would be in institutions and not loving institutional decisions, but always being able to say, hey, I've got 30 kids I can teach tomorrow. And getting them conversing the right way and saying the right things can make a difference, right? So I, I'm optimistic in that we always have that, that interpersonal work to do. And, and finally, I'm optimistic that at the end of the day, the higher ed project is still just so inspiring. Come to campus and come learn. Come learn how to, whatever, whatever it is, how to think better, how to learn well, how to weld, how to do a heart transplant, whatever it is. The, the base assumption in higher ed is that human beings are growable. And we're in a tough moment right now, but it's going to take an awful lot to tear that down completely. And so right now we are helping it along and mending it, but I think it's going to get better.
I think that's great. I think that's a beautiful place to end it. I think my answer to that question is that yeah. thought I just had is face-to-face conversations. Mm-hmm. It's getting off social media with someone who posted something like that and then realizing we, we can talk for three hours and have a lot in common. It's yep. face-to-face conversations. Well, this has just been beautiful. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thanks so much for having me in, Clay. It was great meeting you and chatting. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to continuing to work on the world. 